Hi everyone, this is Dan and welcome to the Rapid Boards Review Podcast. This is episode 29 of the podcast and episode 1 of our Step 1 Review Immunology Series. I would first and foremost like to congratulate every student who matched into a residency program during this 2022 application cycle. And if you're listening to this podcast as a second, third, or even first year medical student and have any questions whatsoever about the match process or how Step 1 fits into that, please do not hesitate to reach out to us at our email listed in the show notes. When I was studying for step one, one of the most rewarding feelings was when I felt confident answering a question based on two or three words that I was able to identify in the question stem. This series on high yield autoantibodies is intended to give you the tools to do just that on test day. Oftentimes, there are certain autoantibodies that are highly specific for a certain pathology. And in these coming episodes, we will go over all of those autoantibodies as well as any other high yield peripheral topics related to the pathology that we're talking about. So thank you so much for listening, and I really hope you find this episode and the coming episodes on other autoantibodies useful. Okay, so starting off, what pathology is associated with anti-postsynaptic acetylcholine receptor autoantibodies? So autoantibodies to the postsynaptic acetylcholine receptor. Good, so that would be myasthenia gravis. And as a follow-up question, what antibiotics can exacerbate a myasthenia gravis crisis, also called a myasthenic crisis? What antibiotics can exacerbate it? There's two. So that would be fluoroquinolones and aminoglycosides. So if you have a patient with myasthenia gravis, be wary of giving them these drugs as they might exacerbate a myasthenic crisis. So what tumor is associated with myasthenia gravis? Good, that would be a thymoma. And it turns out that in some patients, if you remove the thymoma, you could actually cure the symptoms of myasthenia gravis. Now, myasthenia gravis is often co-tested in relation to another disorder that is similar. So what is the other neuromuscular junction disorder that is related to this? Good, so that would be LEMS, or Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, LEMS. Now, what is the antibody here to? So the antibody in LEMS is to a presynaptic calcium channel. So, I mean, when you're thinking about the neuromuscular junction, you have the presynaptic side and the postsynaptic side. The presynaptic side is LEMS, if there's an autoantibody there. The postsynaptic side is myasthenia gravis, if there's an autoantibody there. Now, what cancer is associated with LEMS? Good, so that would be... Uh, small cell carcinoma of the lung. So small cell carcinoma of the lung. So remember, myasthenia gravis, that's a thymoma. Um, in LEMS, that's small cell carcinoma of the lung. Now, what drug can differentiate these two disorders? So for example, you can classically give a drug, and it can either make it better or worse. Uh, what drug can distinguish these two disorders? So that would be the administration of an acetylcholine esterase inhibitor. And in particular, the classically one that's tested is edrophonium. Now, what is the difference? So like if you were to give this acetylcholine esterase inhibitor, classically edrophonium, to a patient with myasthenia gravis versus LEMS, what would be the difference in effects? Good, so in myasthenia gravis, it reverses the symptoms. And in LEMS, it really has a minimal effect. Now, um, so... How come in myasthenia gravis, the administration of edrophonium actually reverses the symptoms? Why is that? 
So that's actually because myasthenia gravis is a problem with a postsynaptic receptor. So acetylcholine does get released. And if you keep acetylcholine in the synapse for a longer period of time, it can overcome the problem with the postsynaptic receptor that's being bound by these autoantibodies. Now let's compare that to LEMS. In LEMS, it's a problem with the presynaptic receptor. It's a problem with the calcium channel. So ACH actually isn't getting released at all. So if you were to administer an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, like edrophonium, it won't do anything because ACH isn't even in the synapse to begin with. All right, so those are all the high yields of myasthenia gravis um, and how it's compared to LEMS. And let's move on to the next one. What are three autoantibodies associated with antiphospholipid syndrome? So that would be anti-cardiolipin, lupus anticoagulant, and anti-beta-2 glycoprotein-1. So I'll say that one more time, antiphospholipid syndrome. There's three very high-yield autoantibodies to know. Anti-cardiolipin, lupus anticoagulant, and anti-beta-2 glycoprotein-1. Now, what pregnancy complication does this disorder, antiphospholipid syndrome, classically present as? Good. So it classically presents as recurrent miscarriages. So if you have a patient that has had maybe two or three miscarriages, um, this antiphospholipid syndrome should be very high up on your differential. Now, as a quick side point, I think definitions are really important on the step one examination. So what is the definition of a miscarriage? So by definition, a miscarriage is death of a fetus that is less than 20 weeks old. A synonym for miscarriage is spontaneous abortion. Now, what is it called when you have a miscarriage, but it is greater than or equal to 20 weeks old? Remember, the definition of a miscarriage is less than 20 weeks, so it can't be called a miscarriage in this case. What is it when it's greater than or equal to 20 weeks old? Good, that's called a stillbirth, and it's really important to keep these definitions in mind. So miscarriage, which is the same thing as a spontaneous abortion, that's death less than 20 weeks, and stillbirth is death greater than or equal to 20 weeks. Now, with these three autoantibodies, remember anticardiolipin, lupus anticoagulant, anti-beta-2 glycoprotein-1, there's like a high-yield fact that's associated with some of these. Now, what is like that special consideration in relation to anticardiolipin? So the special consideration here is that it can give false positive on the VDRL or RPR test. So if you suspect someone has syphilis, you administer this test, it comes back positive, it could be a false positive because they have the anti-cardiolipin antibody. Now, what is the special consideration uh, in regards to lupus anticoagulant? So the lupus anticoagulant causes a falsely elevated PTT. So let's say, you know, you just get some blood tests on someone. They're not really bleeding, but they have a really high PTT. And you're wondering, is this a bleeding disorder? Well, keep in the back of your mind antiphospholipid syndrome, because if they have the lupus anticoagulant, it causes a lab abnormality that makes the PTT stay elevated. All right, let's move on to the next question. What antibody is very sensitive for rheumatologic conditions, but not specific? So that would be ANA. Now, everyone kind of knows ANA, but what does ANA stand for? So 
So ANA stands for anti-nuclear antibodies. And I have seen test questions where the answers actually list out anti-nuclear antibodies instead of ANA, and it can throw people off. Now, when I say room conditions or rheumatologic conditions, what conditions am I referring to? Like, what are the first couple that pop in your mind? So I'll list off a bunch here, but I think it's good just to have this room conditions bucketed in your head because all of them can show up positive for ANA. That would be lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic sclerosis, also called scleroderma, the polymyositis and dermatomyositis combinations, and also drug-induced lupus as well. And, you know, in regards to sensitivity and specificity, remember that ANA is very sensitive to rheumatologic conditions, but it is not specific, meaning that it cannot diagnose a condition. So... And, and just a side note for sensitivity, it's really important to know how to calculate these on step one because these are very classic EBM questions. So for all room conditions, ANA may be positive. And the test questions will thus hinge on which antibodies are specific to the disease because the specificity will allow you to essentially diagnose the condition. So let's ask some questions on those. So what condition is specific for anti-CCP antibodies? And CCP stands for anti-cyclic citrullinated peptide. And remember, I would know both of these names for test questions. So what condition is specific for anti-CCP antibodies? Good, that would be rheumatoid arthritis. So remember, rheumatoid arthritis, just to read it at this point, it could be positive for ANA, but a sensitive and not specific. But if you get an anti-CCP antibody that's positive, that can be specific for rheumatoid arthritis. What condition is specific for having antihistone antibodies? Good, so that would be drug-induced lupus. So drug-induced lupus as specifically associated with antihistone antibodies. Now, what drugs can cause drug-induced lupus? So there's actually a lot of drugs. There's three that are really high yield. But before I go into them, what are the first drugs, uh, maybe three of them, that come to the top of your mind for drug-induced lupus? So the three high-yield ones that I've seen, and I gathered this from Pathoma, actually, are procainamide, hydralazine, and isoniazid. So procainamide, hydralazine, isoniazid. And I don't know why, but I've always remembered this as the words P-H-I, or, or the letters P-H-I. Now, uh, you can be asked second-order questions where they might say, you know, this is drug-induced lupus, but instead of giving you the drug name, they might give you the class. So what class of drugs is procainamide? So kind of uh, non-specifically, it's an antiarrhythmic, but do you know what class of antiarrhythmic it is? Good. So it's a class 1A antiarrhythmic. So procainamide is a class 1A antiarrhythmic. Now, what is the mechanism of action of class 1 antiarrhythmics in general? Good. So they're sodium channel blockers. Okay. So you remember we said that the very the three very high-yield causes are procainamide, hydralazine, and isoniazid. There's many other causes. And I came across a very great mnemonic in first aid. Um, you could look this up in first aid. I'll go through it here, but I don't know if it'll do it much justice through audio. But essentially, um, the mnemonic is lupus makes my hips extremely painful. So the first word, lupus, just is going to clue you into the fact that this is drug-induced lupus. Makes, you take that M, it makes methyl dopa. Makes my, the second M, is minocycline. Hips, H-I-P-S, 
All of those are capitalized, so they actually stand for four different drugs. That's hydralazine, isoniazid, phenytoin, and sulfa drugs. So it makes my hips extremely, the E stands for enternocept, and painful, P stands for procainamide. So just to run through that one more time, lupus makes my hips extremely painful. Makes my is minocycline and methyl dopa. Hips is hydralazine, isoniazid, phenytoin, and sulfa drugs. Extremely painful is enternocept and procainamide. Okay, next question. What condition is specific for anti-centromere antibodies? Anti-centromere antibodies. Good, so that would be systemic sclerosis, the limited type. And the limited type is also referred to as CREST syndrome. Now, CREST syndrome itself is an acronym. The CREST is all capitalized. So what does CREST syndrome actually refer to? Like, what is it an acronym for? So it's an acronym for calcinosis cutis, Raynaud phenomenon, esophageal dysmotility, sclerodactyly, and telangiectasias. And for Crest syndrome, I think above a lot of other conditions, I've seen these show up as pictures quite often. So I'll just look up pictures of all these different phenomena. So calcinotis cutis, this is essentially like uh, calcium deposits that mostly occur at the tips of the fingers. I'll just look up a picture of these. Raynaud phenomena, most people are familiar with. Um, it's when your fingers turn pale, particularly in cold situations. Esophageal dysmotility can present as kind of like stomach upset or kind of gurgling up your food or some sort of dysphagia. And I would just look up pictures of sclerodactyly and telangiectasias because these do show up. And this is called a limited type of systemic sclerosis because it is limited to mostly the fingers and face. Okay, um, next one. Which condition is specific for anti-topoisomerase 1 antibodies? Anti-topoisomerase 1 antibodies. So this would be systemic sclerosis, but the diffuse type. Now, anti-topoisomerase 1 antibodies, what is another name for these antibodies? So they're also called SCL70 or scleroderma 70 antibodies. So if you see SCL70, that is the same thing as anti-topoisomerase 1 antibodies. Now, what other antibody is associated with systemic sclerosis, the diffuse type? Good, that would be anti-RNA polymerase 3. So for systemic sclerosis, the diffuse type, we have two antibodies. We have SCL70, which is also called anti-toporisomerase 1, and we also have anti-RNA polymerase 3. Now, of these two, which is associated more likely with rapidly progressive skin involvement? Good, so that would be anti-RNA polymerase 3. It's more likely to be associated with rapidly progressive skin involvement. And it's also associated with one other complication of a systemic sclerosis diffuse type. Do you know what that is? Good, so that would be increased risk for a renal crisis. Now, what does a renal crisis most likely present as? Like, what would be one of the first presenting symptoms that would alert you this person might be having a scleroderma renal crisis? Good, so that would be very, very, very high blood pressure. Now, classically, how do you treat a scleroderma renal crisis? There's a particular drug class that I'm looking for.
That would be ACE inhibitors. So if someone has a scleroderma renal crisis, you give ACE inhibitors. Um, that is the best treatment for this, and it's likely to be the answer on the test. Now, there's also two pulmonary conditions that are associated with systemic sclerosis diffuse type. Do you know what those two conditions are? So those two conditions would be interstitial fibrosis and pulmonary hypertension. Interstitial fibrosis and pulmonary hypertension. And uh, kind of the last point on this systemic sclerosis diffuse type is that there's actually a buzz phrase that's used in question stems to describe the interstitial lung diseases that you may hear on lung auscultation associated with this disease. So what is that buzz phrase to describe the interstitial lung disease? So that would be bibasilar Velcro-like crackles. That classically decide, uh, describes interstitial lung diseases, and it could be one of the ways that it would be presented on physical exam in a question stem. All right, so this sums up part one. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, be on the lookout for future episodes on this topic. We haven't gone over all the autoantibodies yet, um, and I really hope that you found this content useful.